Well, <clears throat> ever since I became a parent, I've been pretty fascinated to learn how children learn. Right around the two to three year old range, kids really take off in their ability to understand the world around them. They start soaking in new information like a sponge. One thing I noticed that truly struck me is how children seem to learn the best through comparisons. I think it's probably the best way to teach is by making comparisons. And I bet you teach your kids about the world around them by making comparisons all the time without even realizing it. You take what's known and familiar and you use that to teach them about the unknown and the unfamiliar. For example, how would you explain to a three-year-old what a wolf is? Let's say they've never seen a wolf, they've never heard a wolf, you don't have a picture to show them at the moment, so how would you teach them what a wolf is? You'd probably say, well, like a wolf is like a bigger dog, it's meaner, and lives in the wild. Don't touch it. Like that, You take something familiar to them, a dog, they know about a dog, they've seen a dog, they've interacted with a dog, but you use that to make a comparison, teach them about the unknown. And so it goes for all sorts of things. Say you live in Kansas and your kid's never seen the ocean. How do you describe the ocean to a toddler? And you don't have a, a picture to show them. You say, it's, well, it's like a lake, but it stretches as far as the eye can see. And it's got bigger waves. It's filled with fish and, and these things called whales. What's a whale? Well, it's like a fish, but it's as big as a tree. See, so you're, you're taking what's known, what's familiar, you're using it to teach them about what's unknown what's unfamiliar. I think we do this all the time without realizing it. That's just how we communicate. We start with what's already known. <clears throat> Using comparisons is an effective way to teach. And speaking of teaching, our Lord Christ was a master teacher, and he too taught using comparisons all the time, only he knew what he was doing. He, he was doing this on purpose. He knew this was an effective method of communication and taking complex truths, but teaching them with a Simple comparison. And that's what we see Jesus doing all the time, using familiar objects, events, things in the culture and using it to teach the people about God. Think about all the word pictures Christ painted in his teaching. He taught spiritual lessons by referencing lamps giving light, sewing unshrunk unshrunk cloth onto old garments, putting new wine into old wineskins. He's just taking these common things people were familiar with I thought nothing of, but he's using them by comparison to tell them about their God. This is why Jesus talked about straining out gnats, the eye of a needle, sifting wheat, bread, leaven, drinking water, gathering fruit, sowing, reaping, harvesting, seeds, grapevines, branches, trees, light, darkness, the sun, the moon, the stars, clouds, the list goes on. And he used just about every animal to teach some spiritual lesson. From sheep to wolves, dogs, swine, foxes, doves, sparrows, serpents, vipers, eagles. That list also goes on and on. I trust you get the picture. And this morning from the Gospel of Mark, we we get to listen in as Jesus uses, though, one of his, his most favorite word pictures or comparisons. And it's that of a vineyard. Here we're going to see Christ spend a lot of time actually developing this word picture. It's going to tell us about one vineyard in particular, but as is often the case, he's not talking about a vineyard. He's not teaching them about how to make wine. And the lesson has nothing to do with the vineyard, everything to do with with God and man. As you can open your Bibles now to Mark chapter 12 as we get to listen in on, on the master teach. Mark chapter 12. Mark 12 picks up right where chapter 11 left off where Christ is in Jerusalem, and he's squaring off against the religious authorities. This is his third day in Jerusalem during his final week, Passion Week, before he's crucified. And what he does this final week, every day goes to the temple and he teaches. Only on this day, he'll be constantly interrupted. Starting at the end of chapter 11, going all the way through the end of chapter 12, we just watch as Jesus is confronted by wave after wave of opponent. One by one, you have different branches of Israel's religious leadership, and they they come up to Jesus. They approach him in the temple. Why? Because they're trying to trap him. They're they're hitting him with all these hot-button issues, these theological sticky points, anything that they can use and twist his words to try and discredit him in front of the people. 
and they begin their assault unified. These, these leaders were not always unified, but they come together to oppose Christ. He's a common enemy to them. So they begin with a unified front, and that's the end of chapter 11. And it's first thing in the morning, Jesus starts to teach in the temple. He's concerned about the people, but the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, they all unite together. They come up to Jesus to, to question him and oppose his authority. If you don't recall, the day before this is when he barged into the temple grounds and cleaned house. He cleansed the temple a second time during that Passion Week. And this, of course, upset the religious leaders because all that commerce that was going on filled their pockets. They were the ones profiting off of all the business going on at uh, the temple grounds. So now they're confronting Jesus, asking him like, where he gets the authority to do something like that. And he barged into the temple and acted like he owns the place. But they don't recognize his authority, so like, where does he get off? In reality, though, these religious leaders, they, they already know the answer to their question. They already know that several times Jesus has claimed divine authority. He's claimed to come from God, to be the son of God. And so what, what they're really trying to do here in this passage is try and get Jesus to, again, claim he comes from God, that they can spin his words and turn it to some charge of blasphemy in front of all the people, for all the people to hear and to see. Their little ploy doesn't work, but it does reveal how hardened these Jews were. They had heard Jesus teach the wisdom of God, and they had seen Jesus work the power of God, but they refused to believe, even though they knew better because of their stubborn pride. And their love for self. These Jews, these religious leaders were, were the epitome of religious hypocrisy. And as they have rejected Jesus, so he rejects them. And so now, right on the heels of this verbal duel between Christ and these religious leaders, we see Jesus now finally go on the offensive. They have attacked him, and they will continue to attack him all day long on this day. But here at the beginning of Mark 12, he kind of throws in a little attack of his own, a little counterattack to at least put them in their place somewhat. Chapter 12 begins in the same context. He's in the temple. He's with his 12 disciples. You got a group of chief priests, elders, scribes. They're there standing before him, surely decked out in all their religious garb. A crowd probably of hundreds is formed around listening in. The crowd from Mark 11, just witnessed the religious leaders confront Jesus. But now they get to witness Jesus confront the religious leaders. And he turns the tables on them, and he's going to expose their hardened hearts and extreme wickedness. But Jesus, he really is the master here. And he's going to do so in such a way, he's going to get these guys to condemn themselves. He's going to spin a tale, teach a parable, and by the end, they're going to be condemning themselves. You know, this whole time at the temple, they've been trying to trap Jesus, to get him to say something to incriminate himself, a charge of blasphemy that might stick, but it never works. But instead, though, in this passage, it's effortless, effortlessly, Jesus weaves a little story. It's a trap, really, and the religious leaders walk right into it. They come out on the other side, self-condemned for the whole crowd to see. We have here a parable. It's Mark 12, 1 through 12. Parable of the vine growers. And you'll quickly see how perfectly it nails Israel's religious leadership for their own spiritual wickedness. But at the same time, hopefully you also see its relevance for today. Because this is a little story about a vineyard, but it's not about a vineyard. And in general, Christ is teaching us something about how God relates to man. And that lesson hasn't changed. God is the same. There's still much for us to learn from this as well. There's a warning to heed, uh, but some truth to be revealed as well. So let's just see what Jesus has to say to them and to us this morning from Mark 12, 1 through 12. A bit of a longer text, so we'll just read as we go and you can follow along. Let's, let's unpack this. This passage, Mark 12, 1 through 12. And we'll start from verse 1. 
Mark 12 verse 1 says, And he began to speak to them in parables. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. So we have another one of Christ's many parables. These are they're, they're fictional, but they're true to life. They, they could have happened. They're within the realm of possibility. As we'll see, this one really is more of a trap, kind of like Nathan the prophet set for King David. <clears throat> now, whenever we read these stories, unintentionally but unavoidably, we, we can't help ourselves identifying with the characters, the characters that most resemble us. And here in this story, Jesus begins with a landowner. And this character would have resonated with these religious leaders because they were the majority landholders in Israel. Already, they're going to identify with this landowner, and we'll see how Jesus uses that against them in the end. But now let's unpack some more of the, the details of this comparison he's using to teach. We've got this vineyard. And although we no longer live in an agrarian society, we get this picture. This is essentially wine country here. You guys have seen a vineyard before. So you can picture this. You want to start a new vineyard. What do you do? Well, first, a wall or a fence would be nice, something to keep out all the wild animals and and thieves. In the ancient world, this might be nothing more than a hedge. Today, you might see barbed wire. Next, I mean, you definitely need a wine press and a vat These are essential for making wine. If you don't just want to grow grapes, you need a wine press and a vat. In antiquity, a wine press, just a huge hollowed-out cavity in a stone. Harvest time, they'd throw in all the clusters of grapes and either stomp on it with their feet or take another huge stone, just roll it over, crush the grapes, releasing the juice. That juice had to be collected, and that's where the vat comes in. This was a rectangular hewn out stone connected to the wine press all the the juice would drain right into it and it's ready for fermentation so these are essential finally a tower or an outpost would be nice if vineyards today just need a shed someplace to store all the tools essential for the operation that's what they needed back then as well but but this tower doubled as a watchtower these would typically be 15 20 feet high made of stone and allowed a watchman just to keep an eye on the vineyard for, for thieves. You get the picture. All this goes to say, we have this owner, though. He's really sparing no expense to turn his estate into a functioning vineyard, like, really quick. He wants it to turn around, and it'll take some years, but to start producing a crop. This was an intentional business venture. He wanted this land to make him some money. So he puts everything in place, and he hires some workers, verse 1. He rented it out to vine growers, went on a journey. This was likewise common back then. Local vine growers were tapped for their expertise, their commission to actually make the wine. They ran the show, and they would get a portion of the profit. They were worth their wages. Meanwhile, the owner did nothing further, but whenever he desired, being the owner, he's entitled to his share of the prophet. He wants some of the produce. Well, that's that's his share. And that's what we see happening in verse 2. He's moved away somewhere far or is on a long journey, but he's, he wants some of the produce. This vineyard is finally producing a crop, and he wants some of it. So he sends a, a slave to go get some, to get some of the harvest from the vine growers. But things don't go as planned. Verse 3, it says, Uh, Regarding the slave the the owner sent, it says they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's a little unexpected. Like, why why would they do that? Don't don't they realize they're they're violating the terms of their contract? Don't they know this man owns the vineyard? He is more than entitled to his share of the produce. Yes, they know that. They just don't care. Verse 4 says again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. 
And so, with many others, beating some and killing others. Things get out of hand pretty quick. Like, you see the pattern of escalation. That, that got real serious real fast. The first slave sent received a beating. The second was wounded in the head. They were probably trying to kill him. The third, they actually killed. And after that, it was a free-for-all. Many more were sent, and they're coming back either beaten or, or dead. They're treated shamefully, and some are killed. And I know what you're probably thinking, like, why does this guy keep sending his slaves? After the first guy comes back beaten up, like, maybe you send one more. Maybe, like, it's a misunderstanding. Maybe there's, there's some explanation. But the second guy comes back and his, his head is bashed in. Like, then the third guy is killed. It's definitely time to stop sending servants to check in on the vineyard. It's time to like hire some authorities or some mercenaries to go bring these guys to justice. They're clearly wicked vine growers. But that's not what happens. This landowner just keeps sending more people to his vineyard to try and get some produce. It's like he's delusional. And it gets even worse because next, he, he thinks it's a good idea. After all that's happened, he thinks it's a good idea to send his son, his beloved son. Verse 6 says he had one more to send. He's got no one left, but he has a beloved son. And says he sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And verse 8 says, so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Again, here the logic at first baffles us. Like, why would the owner do this? Like, he thought they might respect his son when they've done nothing but fatally disrespect his other servants. But we read this story, it's obvious what's going to happen. They're, they're not going to respect the son. They're going to, to treat him poorly as well. Indeed, when these vine growers saw the son, they think this is their big break. You see, in seeing the son, they must have put together that the owner had died. Otherwise, why on earth would the son be coming around? And they reason that if they dispose of the son, they say the inheritance will be theirs. That there's going to be no one else to lay claim on this vineyard. They, they can take it over. It's kind of like a hostile ancient takeover of a vineyard. And so they kill the son. To make matters worse, he's not even buried. Which back then, I'm sure you know, a huge disgrace in the culture. They just take his lifeless body and throw it over the vineyard wall. At that point, the crowd listening to Jesus would have been outraged. And rightly so. I mean, if this really happened, if, if a story like this of some sort you heard in the news today, you likewise would be astonished, bewildered, outraged. Like, how could this happen? Well, with all of this, Jesus tees up the next question, verse 9. This is where he's been getting to. He says, verse 9, he asks them, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, after all this, after all this, and they, they've even killed his son, like, what's he, what do you think he's going to do now? This owner has seemed impotent for so long, but now that they've, they've killed his son, what's he going to do? What should he do? Jesus asked this question of the religious leaders, and they actually gave a response. They responded like any of us would. They replied to Christ's question, it's recorded in the parallel passage of Matthew 12. I'll read it for you. What they say, Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew 21, verse 41. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. They got the answer right. That's, that's what he should do and that's what he will do. And in Mark's gospel, he records Christ affirming their answer, verse 10, or rather, uh, verse 9. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now, that finally makes sense. Like that, that seems logical. 
I mean, this owner has to do something. These vine growers are thugs, they're criminals, they're murderers. They need to be brought to justice. It is only right for them to be brought to justice. And similarly, these scribes and Pharisees, elders, priests, they're standing around Jesus, and they agree. They have sided with the owner, and they have condemned these tenants for their clear wickedness. But you see, with this right here, unbeknownst to them, the religious leaders just walked right into Christ's trap. Because in siding with the owner and condemning the vine growers, they just condemn themselves. Because in this story, they're not actually the owner. They are the vine growers. This parable is not a hard one to figure out, and the key to unlocking its interpretation comes in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, he goes on. He says, Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, when you first read this, you might wonder, like, what? Okay, what is the connection? He was talking about a vineyard. Now he's talking about builders. He's mixing metaphors. Where is he going with this? But actually, he's just quoting scripture, Psalm 118 to be exact, like I read a little bit from this morning. That's a special psalm. has very obvious messianic undertones. Everyone understood it was a messianic psalm. In fact, earlier that week during the triumphal entry, the crowds were quoting part of Psalm 118, when they welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's from Psalm 118. And here Jesus is quoting another verse from Psalm 118, a famous verse, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. There's another comparison But yes, he is mixing metaphors, but the point is plain. And especially in ancient construction and modern construction, whatever, whether it's a stone or concrete, like the cornerstone is the most important part of the building. It determines all your angles. You lay the cornerstone out first. You build your walls off of those angles. So if you chose a crooked, out-of-square cornerstone, you're going to end up with crooked walls. So builders would very closely inspect potential cornerstones and they would discard them if they weren't perfect. They keep discarding stones until they found a perfect cornerstone. Well, this verse pictures a stone that has been rejected by the builders. It's on the the trash heap. But that stone actually goes on to become the chief cornerstone. It's not hard to tell. Jesus is that Stone. He's the stone which the builders rejected, but he went on to become the chief cornerstone. Or translation, he actually is the Messiah, which the religious leaders rejected, but he went on to become the foundation for salvation. Here you have these top religious leaders of Israel. And after their inspection, they found Jesus wanting. They have rejected him. They have discarded him as Messiah, even to the point of killing him. We know that will happen. But as he rose from the dead, having paved the way for salvation, did not Christ become the cornerstone of God's plan of of redemption? Is his not the only name under heaven given by which men must be saved? Jesus is God's Messiah. He came to rescue people from their sins, but these leaders in in great wickedness and hypocrisy have rejected him and killed him, just like the vine growers killed the son. And that won't stop him. Being this chief cornerstone, he will rise victorious, which is bad news for them, but glory for him. This is to God's glory, like verse 11 says, still quoting Psalm 118, This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The religious leaders standing before Jesus, they knew this scripture. They knew Psalm 118 pretty well. 
but they failed to see its fulfillment in Christ. Their blinders were on. They, they just couldn't see. And in rejecting Christ, so they too will be rejected. They rejected Jesus, so now he is rejecting them. They will not be the leaders of this new people of God that he is forming after his resurrection, the church. Instead, their building, the physical temple, will be left desolate to them. It will be torn down, and they will be cast out. Now, going backwards, this Psalm 118 reference helps us make sense of the rest of the vine grower's parable. If Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected, he's clearly the son, the last one God sent, whom the growers killed. That makes the owner of the vineyard not the religious leaders, but God the Father himself. And that makes the vine growers Israel, specifically the leaders of Israel. That's also evident from some clues in the parable itself. If you go way back to verse 1, your Bible might tell you or indicate that Christ is quoting here part of Isaiah chapter 5. And that's quite significant because Isaiah 5 records its own parable in the Old Testament. Isaiah 5 likewise gives a parable featuring a vineyard. God himself is pictured planting a vineyard. And God is doing everything necessary to just get it ready to produce fruit. That's what he wants. He wants this vineyard to bear fruit. So he removes the stones. He plants only the best vines. He builds a tower in it. He hews out a wine vat. He does everything to enable this crop or the, this, these vines to produce good grapes. But this vineyard only produces worthless grapes, Isaiah 5, 2 says. And so it goes on to question, like, what, what is God going to do to this vineyard? Well, the answer, he, he will tear it down. He will lay waste to it. And verse 7 of Isaiah 5 makes a connection that the vineyard represents Israel. And God gave them everything they needed. He gave them his covenant, his law, his word, prophets, a priesthood, a temple, Ark of the Covenant. He, they, he gave them everything they needed to know him and honor him. But all the while, they produced no spiritual fruit, only worthless grapes, deeds of of either unrighteousness or self-righteousness. So what's left for them now but judgment? He's going to get rid of that vineyard and replace it. Now here in Mark 12, Jesus, he's telling a very similar parable. One key difference is now it's featuring the vine growers, not the vineyard, because Christ is putting the blame squarely on the heads of Israel's shepherds. All of Israel has really gone astray, but who is to blame the most are her religious leaders. All of these, these men, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the elders. What have they done? They were given stewardship of God's people, the vineyard. But like the vine growers, that they just wanted it for themselves. They wanted the power and the rule and the authority for themselves, even though it didn't belong to them. And they weren't concerned with bearing real spiritual fruit and giving to God the glory. Even though that's why he put them there, they just wanted it for their own way, for their own benefit. And so when it came time for God to collect some spiritual fruit from Israel, just to see his people walking in righteousness, these religious leaders, they they turn God away. And those whom God sent to them, they turn away as well. Specifically, he's talking about the prophets In Christ's parable, it's evident that all all the slaves the owner sends to the vineyard represent the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. God sent them to Israel time and time again to try and turn the people back to God, but almost always there, they're just rejected. What is Israel's history with her prophets? Just like these vine growers, they mistreated them, they beat them, several times they killed them. The Old Testament talks about this many times. For example, 2 Chronicles 24, 18 and 19 speaks of Israel and says, They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. 
So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their guilt. Yet God sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. If you want just a historical note, apart from the Old Testament, apart from tradition, we learn about the fate of most of the great prophets. Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was accused of treason, thrown in a pit, and then stoned to death. Ezekiel received similar hatred and hostility. Amos was forced to flee for his life. Zechariah was stoned. Uriah died by the sword. And that list likewise goes on. And this is how Israel treated her own prophets. These are just messengers from God trying to get the nation to repent and bear fruit. And now here, history is repeating itself one last time. Standing before Jesus are who? That they're the latest vine growers of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the elders. And standing before them is who? It's one whom God has sent to them last of all, his own beloved son. Because maybe, just maybe, they'll respect the son. But how do they treat him? Well, like the parable says, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. They treated Jesus worst of all, which makes them worst of all. They knew Jesus was the Messiah. Don't be mistaken. Notice in the parable, these vine growers kill the son, not because they don't recognize him, but precisely because they do recognize him. They know he's the son. That's why they want to get rid of him. Likewise, these leaders, they knew, they saw the signs Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't want to give up control over the vineyard. They didn't want to give up their chokehold over the people, their power, their wealth, their authority. It drove them crazy to see Jesus rising in popularity while they are plummeting in popularity. But it's just plain to see. Remember, even Pontius Pilate knew. He knew why the Jews handed Jesus over to be crucified. And it was simply because of envy. So now you see what this parable is all about. And if these connections are true, what does it mean will happen next, specifically to the vine growers of Israel? And like the crowd said, the owner will bring those wretches to a wretched end. The only thing that's left is for the Lord to destroy these vine growers. And that means for the religious leaders of Israel, their time has come. God has rejected them and condemned them. And the only thing waiting for them is destruction. This explains what Jesus says over in Matthew 23. If you want, you can quickly turn over there to Matthew 23, 29, where in this same time frame, this Passion Week, Jesus utters these, these words of woe on the vine growers of Israel, the religious leaders. And listen to his harshest words of condemnation. Jesus pulled no punches. He just spoke plain truth of God's justice on these wicked vine growers. Matthew 23, look at verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Look at verse 37. He goes on to say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Israel will be left desolate. The temple, not long after, will be destroyed. The leaders will be deposed. But notice, back in Mark 12, the owner does not destroy the vineyard. Instead, he hands it over to others who will finally make it bear fruit. And that is the church, starting with the apostles. This task of representing God's word and, and shepherding God's people was handed over now to 12 ordinary men. But they were vastly more qualified than Israel's religious leadership because they followed Christ. They received the Messiah. They did not reject him, but followed him. And God will go on to build a new household, a new temple for all the saints of all the nations. Ephesians 2.20 testifies, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. One temple will be destroyed. Uh, another will be built. A lasting temple, God's people, the dwelling place of the Spirit. But these religious leaders of Israel would be excluded from this new temple because they rejected the cornerstone. They wanted nothing to do with this building. They refused Jesus, and all who similarly refused Jesus will find no place in this temple made without hands, the new covenant people of God. Well, you would hope after all this that the religious leaders would finally just break down, humble themselves, and submit to Christ. But that's not what happens. To finish, we go back to Mark 12, look at verse 12. It says, and they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. See, at the end, they realized that he was speaking against them. They fell into a trap. At first, they took the side of the landowner and condemned the, the wicked vine growers for treating the son so terribly. But now they've realized Jesus was actually talking about them. And so, in effect, they condemned themselves. They just admitted their own guilt for rejecting Christ, God the Son. But instead of causing them to repent, this only led them to further hardness of heart. And their pride was so offended that their only response is now they want to kill Jesus even more. They, they, they really want to kill him now. All they need is the right time away from the crowds. And sadly, that their true colors show. These are supposed to be the holy men of Israel. But they show no fear of God in wanting to, ki to kill Christ. The only thing they fear is man. They just fear the crowds. They don't fear God. For now, though, verse 12 ends. They leave Christ, but not for long. We'll learn later, or as you keep reading the chapter, they come back again and again on this day, and they keep trying to trap him and to trip him up. They will fail, and in the end, their house will be left to them desolate. For now, though, this is the end of the text. It's not the end of its significance, though. You know, these words of Jesus here in Mark 12... They do have a very specific historical interpretation, but they also have a, a broad general application. Because you see here how, how Christ is at the same time revealing just common truth of how God relates to man. And that part doesn't change. We are not today, obviously, the religious leaders of Israel. These words are not directly for us. But we still live under God. He is still like this. He expects us, his people, to bear fruit. It's fair to ask, though, for our sakes, just by way of application, what, what is there that Christ is revealing about God uh, that, that we might take to heart ourselves here? And just by way of a, a reflection, I, I'll steal from Paul in Romans eleven twenty two, where he says, Behold the kindness and the severity of God. You read that verse before? Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Of God. That's what Jesus is revealing about God here the kindness and the severity. You know, on the one hand, God is unmatched in his kindness, the kindness he shows toward man. But on the other hand, his severity is real. What does that mean? Well, first, think about God's kindness. 
in this parable, God, God's kindness is put on display in the form of his remarkable patience and forbearance and long-suffering with the vine growers. I mean, at first, we think the owner is a fool because he keeps sending people to the vine growers, even though they treat him poorly. But when you realize the owner represents God and the servants are his prophets, even Christ, you realize he's not being foolish. He's just being loving. I mean, look at what amazing lengths God goes to to warn fallen man, to offer him life and salvation. Even after being rejected and scorned countless times, God kept giving them another chance. And we see a big difference between God and us, because if we were the owner, we would have gotten rid of the vine growers long before we sent the son. But you see here that the patience of God, the kindness of God, even to the, to the degree that he will suffer personally in, in sacrificing his own son as a final outreach to his people, Israel. Indeed, God's ultimate kindness toward us is in the sending of his son. Because as we know, Jesus didn't come just to check up on us. No, he came on purpose to die for us. He did not die accidentally. And the parable the, can't stretch it too far. He did not lose his life. He willingly gave it and laid it down. He knew this was going to happen. And he intentionally did so to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what he was doing on that cross, though rejected by men and even rejected by God when he was made sin. He did that, that we might not receive the condemnation. And that is God's greatest gift to us, which, which no one deserves. But because of Jesus, now no one can ever doubt the love and the kindness of God. But amazingly, people still do. People still doubt the love and the kindness of God. And like these religious leaders of Israel, people still slam the door shut on God's kindness by rejecting his son Christ. Why is that? Well, part of it is because people today, just like back then, they, they don't have an accurate view of themselves. In a great spiritual pride, people believe that they are right before God, even righteous before God. And there's just only a self-righteousness because they fail to account for all their sin. Scripture says none are righteous, not even one. There's not a single person who is right and righteous before God. People believe they're entitled to God's favor. God owes them something. As if life is all about them. But wait, do you realize you don't even own your own life? Like, stop and think about that. Because it's true. Like, you think you do, but you don't. You don't even own your own life. God made you. He gave you life. One day he will take it back and on that day force you to give an account for how you spent the life he gave to you. And on that day, everyone will be found wanting because all have rebelled. All have sought to live like they own the vineyard to the great dishonor of the real owner. But that dishonor won't go on forever. God is right now still displaying a, a profound patience and kindness toward mankind and just allowing humanity to rebel, continue to rebel and reject him. He does so so that his people might have more time to repent and seek him. And that's what you need to do. You need to see your sin and run to his offer of kindness in Christ. There's a full pardon waiting for you if you receive the son. You need to do that or else severity. Because a day is coming when his patience will end and, and the door of salvation will close. If you reject Christ unto death, if you persist in your rebellion, if you harden your heart, that's when God's kindness transforms into severity, where you behold the kindness and the severity of God. Psalm 2.12 says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. 
and it hinges on what you do with the Son, Christ. God has already shown you everlasting kindness in sending the Son. And if you receive the Son, there's nothing for you but everlasting blessing and love. God's kindness is even meant to lead you to repentance. But if you do not receive the Son, if you hear him and know him and turn him away, then there's nothing waiting for you but severity. This is Romans 2, 4 and 5, where he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We need to realize is that in a sense, you and I are like the vine growers and that God created you and made you to bear fruit. That's what he wants from you. He made you to extract fruit, the fruit of praise and worship and righteousness. He made you to give him the glory. That's, that's why he gave you life. That's what you owe him. When he calls to collect, he wants to see your life. But in sin, we don't, we don't do that. We don't give him our life. We, we take it for ourselves. We worship ourselves. We, we like to think this world is ours. This life is ours. It's to be lived just for us. We want dominion over our vineyard, but it's not ours. When will you recognize this? Will you give God the glory with your life or not? Will you pay homage to the sun or not? We live in a world now that has no awareness of God or his judgment. And many, like the vine growers, they've already <clears throat> cast God out of their lives. They, they want to be the Lord over their own little world, as if they own the planet, as if it doesn't belong to God, as if he won't come back for it. God to them seems like an absentee landlord who is easily cheated. Most people believe that the owner is distant, he'll never come back, he probably doesn't even exist, all will be fine. But there will be a return and a reckoning, and on that day, what happens to the wicked vine growers? Like they themselves said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And behold, the just severity, the righteous severity of God. Matthew 7, 19, Jesus said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's a way to avoid this. Don't tune out God's message. Thankfully, God's kindness comes before his severity. And one way it comes is in the form of warning. A message calling you to open your eyes before it's too late. This is why God sent Israel prophet after prophet giving them chance after chance to repent and return. People don't want to hear that message, though, you know, in their pride. That's why they killed the prophets. And the prophets had this pesky habit of giving people the word of God. And what does the word of God do? It, it convicts. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I mean, God's word, his message of warning, is meant to convict you of your sin. But if you decide you want to keep your sin and serve self as Lord, then you're going to eventually have to kill your conscience, you'll have to kill the prophets, and you'll have to kill Christ by rejecting his word. Because you can't have them around convicting you all the time. But I would urge you not to repeat this grave error. I mean, even in God's providence, you are all here today. You happen to be hearing a message of warning. This is God's kindness to you. You've been given an opportunity to humble yourself, repent, and turn to the Son, and believe, finally yield him your life, your will for his, and that you might live and so I would pray that you don't tune out his word. It's not comfortable. It's not pleasant to have your sin exposed by the word of God. 
it hurts. What you need to realize is this sword cuts you not to kill you, but to heal you. You need to embrace the kindness of the good doctor, Christ, the physician of our souls. Turn to him. Be healed. Receive his kindness today. In the end, there's only going to be severity for those who reject him. But there's everlasting kindness for those who receive him. So I would tell you today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Israel did. They had the good news preached to them. They even witnessed the good news incarnate. But they were not allowed to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. And what about you? He's fixed a day of salvation. That day is today. It's not tomorrow. It's always today. You might not get a tomorrow. He owns your life. He might take it tomorrow. But today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Open them, turn to Christ by faith, and live. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are our good and loving Father. And we know that with confidence. You're a just God. You're righteous. And we are not. We stand before you all, convicted and condemned, myself included. We are those who have gone astray. All of us, each of us has turned to his own way. But we see, Lord, your love held out toward us and that you sent your son, Christ, the Savior, your beloved and most precious child, Christ. And you sent him to, to die for us, to bear our guilt and shame, to take all of the wrath that, that was owed to us, to take it on himself. It amazes me how many people still can question your love and question your goodness and your kindness. Indeed, as we said before, what more could you possibly do to convince us of your loving kindness, your mercy? And the offer is held out for all to hear and to receive, that they can enter into your everlasting love and kindness by humbling themselves and turning to Christ. If there are any here this morning, I, I pray you do just that that you convict them, that you do a work of humbling in their hearts, that they would turn and live, and they would not harden their hearts. Lord, we thank you for what you have done in our lives. For so many of us here, we have done so. I pray you, you help us continually turn to Christ, to yield him more of our lives. Because even still, we can fall into the trap of thinking this life is ours, and it's, it's just for us to live and do as we please. Lord, you intend us to have great joy in this life, but it's found in, in living for you and your will. So I pray you, you convict all of us to yield more of our lives over to you. You created us to bear fruit. You saved us to bear fruit. Maybe that, may that be what we give to you each and every day. We give you our lives as you gave the life of your son for us. Uh, the least we can do is give our lives in return as an offering of worship. So take them, convict us, and purify us as a people of your possession. May we be found faithful and fruitful and give you thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.